Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. So last week, and I should note we're recording on the 28th of September, the ASX 200 fell 2%. It was big news at the time. There was real concern about blood on the streets. And I was talking to our guest about this particular topic, what to do when the market falls. And we were super worried about rushing out this recording because we were thinking that the market may fall again very heavily the next day. And we really wanted investors to be prepared for the worst. And then the next day, the market did absolutely nothing. It actually closed up a little bit and it's now up over the last five days as if last week's news never happened. But we all know that at some point the worst will happen. This is... This is not going to be uh, the only time in history that that markets got forever. So today I'm speaking with Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool to help talk through what you are going to do when the market falls, because it will happen. Scott, thanks so much for joining me. Gemma, thank you. It's uh, thanks for the invitation. I, I'm slightly offended that you invited me to talk about crashes. Uh, if I'm the first person you thought of, then we're all in trouble. But uh, no, th- thank you for the invitation, mate. It's good to be with you. It's, well, you'll know why in two seconds because <laughs> a friend of mine who doesn't work in finance recently forwarded me an email of yours, and it was entitled. And you guys do marketing like extreme level marketing in terms of catchy <laughs> headlines, right? And it was entitled The Crash is Coming or something similar. Mm -hmm. And this friend of mine was super freaked out. Now, you and I both know he obviously hadn't read it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But tell me about it. Tell me about what you were writing about there. I mean, that's very funny, actually, Gemma. I also got a couple of Facebook comments to the scene. Are you feeling pessimistic today, Scott? I'm like, you didn't read the didn't read the article, did you? Uh, So here's here's the thing. I've I've been around uh, a long time and I've lived through and invested through most of the best crashes over the last 40-something years, and it's a ongoing truth, an inevitable truth, as you said at the opening, that we will have more crashes. And the problem is that we know from investor behaviour and investor psychology that if you're not prepared for something, if you haven't thought it through, the chances of it's a little bit like driving, right? You can be, you can be if you're trying to respond to in the moment to something in front of you, your chance, if you've never thought about it happening or experienced something like that, your chance of doing something good, proper, appropriate, responsible are really, really low. If you've thought about it in advance, if you kind of have thought, okay, well, if and when this happens, here's how I'll respond, you're a much, much better chance of responding appropriately. And so the crash is coming. Yeah, we're a bit of a provocative headline, but it was it was specifically to try and make the point to people, hey, frankly, we went through the COVID crash in March. We've been through GFCs. We've been through dot-com crashes. I vividly remember the 87 crash. I was at school at that point for the record, but uh, I vividly remember that one. And and by the time it comes around, if you start thinking at that point, how I might respond, the chances your portfolio is not created properly, the chances that you haven't really thought through how you're going to feel if the market falls 15, 20, 30, 40%, um, and the chance you respond badly are just massively higher. So this is all about just saying, hey, it will come, it will happen, as sure as night follows day. You better be ready for it. And here's a way to think about it. Yeah, I love that. And there's a whole variety of things that are worth 
pointing out at this point, my one of my favorite quotes actually is, we all think that we're going to rise to the occasion, but you will probably fall to the level of your training. <laughs> That's so right. true, right? That. You have that. this idea you're going to be awesome mm. on the mm. day despite your lack of preparation. Um, yeah. But it, it just it just doesn't work that way. There's there's no possible way you can in the moment feel. I mean, like, you know, I've been through enough as I said, and even during the COVID crash. I felt terrible. Like I, I, I and, and to that point, I relied on that training, right? I relied on the, okay, this feels rubbish. I, I don't even feel super confident about the stocks I'm buying because everything is crashing around me. And maybe this is the one that, that is the end of end of the world. And maybe this is the end of capitalism and the markets. And, and you have those dark thoughts. Um, but I did it because I knew it was the right thing to do. And even when you don't feel like doing it, but you do it anyway, that's kind of the, the hopefully the outtake I want to leave people with. That's super interesting. So you were buying during the COVID crisis and I've made this point so many times over the last 18 months. I am very sorry if I'm boring everyone's tears, but NabTrade, that's exactly what we saw. We saw mm-hmm. investors absolutely throwing money at the that's market awesome. yeah. last year. It was incredible to watch. And I love it because I, I've felt for a long time that retail investors are not as dumb as Many professionals would like <laughs> yeah. to make them out to be. Yep. And and people are generally pretty astute about what they're going to do with their own money. And there was a lot of cash sitting on the sidelines before COVID. Mm. People were mm. waiting for a buying opportunity. Yep. The thing that this point about falling to the level of your training, many of those people had never been in the market before. So mm. they did incredibly well out of a crash. Yes. But they didn't lose any money because they didn't have mm, any money mm, on the mm. table. Mm. And then we had plenty of other investors who've been around for a long time, like yourself and like me. I started after the tech bubble. Uh, so it's really easy to think you're clever when everyone else lost money and you didn't. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but then I was around during the GFC and that was much yeah. less fun. Like yes. I, it, was, it was fascinating, but I didn't feel very intelligent. And so I, my concern now is that there's a lot of people out there who've done incredibly well out of a crash, but it was such mm. a short, sharp crisis. Yep. It was so different to the GFC when people lost money. And this is where training or planning comes into it people lost money for 18 months Mm -hmm. and to keep losing money for 18 months is really really it's really hard to keep your nerve whereas Mm -hmm. last year people didn't need to keep their nerve that you know the market turned around so quickly a lot of them (laughs) like hey we're back on the up this is great Mm -hmm. uh and with the exception of some stocks obviously so one thing i do want to talk about is where the market is now Mm. The catalyst we were referring to last week was Evergrande, which is a Chinese property development company that no one had heard of two weeks ago, but now we're all very well aware, (laughs) very, very well informed about. Um, But there are obvious concerns that any catalyst will tip the market over the edge because it's pretty fully priced at the moment. What are your thoughts about that? Do you look at the market and go, timing's difficult, but it looks toppier than usual? No. Um, <laughs> I gotta say, I speaking of training, I, I spent a lot of time in my younger years making about every mistake that an investor can make. And I reckon to your to your point before about people who started in the market in March, April last year and have only ever made money, it's a really difficult thing to start so well, I think, because you 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 get used to the fact you think you're a genius, you think you can time the market, you think you can pick stocks. Um, but a rising tide lifts all boats. And so 
if there are people listening now who've had just the last 15, 18 months of, of joy in the market, then great. Congratulations and good on you for getting going. But we will have that crash as, as you're talking about, Gemma. Um, the, the, the point of making early, early mistakes is I've made them all and, and probably most of them twice. But one thing I've learned very, very clearly is you can't time the market. One of the things my boss, Bruce Jackson, says is that your bubbles tend to go on longer than you expect. Booms tend to go on longer than you expect, right? And so it's also true that the market spends most of its time at all-time highs. If you look back at a chart of the share market over any extended period of time, most of that time, it's at all-time highs. It's going on to a new high. Now, in hindsight, you can see where the bottoms were and the tops were. And I should say, by the way, I wasn't boasting about buying during the COVID crash because I bought in February as well. You know, as the market started to fall, I thought, oh, how much lower can Webjet possibly go? And of course, we now know <laughs> yes, it was a lot more. And so I'm still sitting on losses on Webjet. Absolutely. Um, now, I made some more money back on corporate travel. I've, I still own those two stocks for full disclosure. So, you know, I, I'm not, I'm no genius at picking the bottom or picking the top or, you know, I didn't, didn't put all my money in the market on, on March 23 or March 19, whenever it was. This was, this was an ongoing process. And so, you know, if, if the market is going to go, to higher highs over time, and it always has. My, my, my loudest message during that, that month, kind of from February through to about July, August, was, was very simply this. I don't know if the market goes lower from here. I don't know how long it takes to recover. I don't know how bad it gets before it gets better. But what I do know from history is every single time the market has got to a high and then fallen, it's got back to and then surpassed that previous high. In other words, there is no time in the past, where even if you bought at the toppy top, you didn't subsequently make some money. And if your dollar cost averaging through this, then you bought at the top and then at the bottom and then at the top and then at the bottom. And over time, you're going to make a stonkingly large amount of money if you just buy good quality companies, if you diversify and let it compound. Now, I can't promise that's true. I can't assert that's going to be true because the regulator won't let me and it's probably not right to do so anyway. But history suggests that the market has never, never, never not got back to and then surpassed a previous high. So I look at the market now and I think, well... It was more comfortable looking back. I wish I'd mortgaged the house in last April, but I don't get the chance to do that a second time. So I am where I am. If I think these are good businesses that have good long-term prospects, and I'm a long-term investor, right? I'm, I'm looking out three, five, preferably even 10 years. Um, my average holding period has got to be seven or eight years, probably, I think right now, um, at least the stuff I haven't, you know, I bought some recently. So of course that doesn't add up into the numbers, but I, I'm just going to keep, I'm just going to keep buying. I, I, I am a massive proponent of dollar cost averaging. So I look at the market and I think, okay, some stocks are higher than they've ever been. That kind of is regular. I have to remind myself of that. Uh, some will fall from here. Some will go higher from here. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an easy example, Gemma. It's a cheap example and it's too easy. So I probably should find a better one. But look at Amazon, right? It's gone from $3 to $100, then back to nine, and then back to you know, three and a half thousand. Now I own shares. I didn't buy them at three or 100, unfortunately. I bought them much later than that. But, um, you know, at what point was an Amazon high <laughs> the wrong time to buy? So far, at least, the answer is never. Because you've, you've, I mean, maybe the last three months or four months, but over Amazon's 24 years of public company life, it's almost never been a bad time to buy. Now, again, easy choice, and we can do it in hindsight. But I think the true is also the same is also true of the market. Oh, there's so many interesting things in there. But I'm going to ask you a question that I think a lot of investors wrestle with, and I can be one of them, <laughs> which is. It's so easy to get attached to the fact that something is expensive. Yeah, that's true. And also that it used to be $3 <laughs> yeah. or $9 or $100 <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of things that I bought some of but mm -hmm. not enough. Yeah. And I kick myself all the time yeah. going, you idiot, 
you knew it was good. You wanted to buy mm-hmm. it at that price. Why did you not buy a lot of it? What did you think yeah. it was going to fall? Like, why would you buy it if you thought it was going to fall? How do you detach from, because we clearly have so many value investors, Yeah. It, it, you know, in our base, people who mm-hmm. want to buy good companies cheaply mm-hmm. and look at the market right now and go, <laughs> that's not a thing. How the hell do I do it? Right, right. So talk to me about dealing with that. Wow, that's a that's a huge one. So um, I, I've I've done worse than you, Gemma. Not only did I not buy enough of something, I actually sold something that went up. Uh, Domino's back in two thousand twelve or thirteen went from eight to thirteen, and I thought I was a genius and I made a fortune. It was looking expensive, so I sold. Uh, I sold them half of our members. If you look at the price now, it's something like ten times the price I sold for. So I am the world's biggest idiot. And and I think partly partly that lesson actually is what helps. Those mistakes kind of help inform the next step, right? So once you've done that once or twice. You don't want to do it again. Now, our listeners don't want to have to make that mistake themselves. What do they say? You know, it's life's too short to make your own mistakes. You better learn from others. Um, and so, you know, please learn from my mistake of selling Domino's way too easy, which was exactly as you said, one of those great companies that had a really bright future. Same source sales growth had slowed a little. The price had gone up 60%. I was like, oh, you know, uh, so with, with some value roots myself. Um, clearly that, that's crazy. You can't, you know, it's a, it's a good price now. Maybe it won't go higher. Maybe it'll get out before it falls just in case it does. It, it, it kind of comes down to, to me, for me anyway, letting go of stuff. Like I'm supposed to be an expert, right? I get paid to do this. And so I'm supposed to know all the answers. If I have a, a skill, it is, it is in the temperament and most specifically just letting go of the stuff that I can't know or can't control. So to your point on that, um, I can't know for a top or a bottom. That's what I'm saying. That's why I'm not, you know, if I knew, if I knew we're at top now, I'd be selling everything. If I knew we're at the bottom, I'd be buying everything, but I don't know. So I dollar cost average. To your point about buying stuff that's gone up, um, you know, it, trying to use, in my opinion, those historical share price movements to work out what's happening next is not the world's best idea. Even the traders would say they're doing it over short periods of time, right? If I'm investing for multiple years, I should have looked at Domino's back then and said, this is a really good company doing some really good things with great smart management. All the reasons I bought it for, selling it was just dumb, right? Because none of those had changed. Same source sales growth had fallen slightly. And to my, again, complete ignorance, and I went, well, how many more pizzas can Australians possibly eat? And the answer turns out to be lots and lots more. Plus, they went to New Zealand, Canada, I don't know, Japan, um, Europe. So, you know, to some degree, you have to just separate what's happened in the past from what the future looks like. And the question at 13, or we eventually did re-recommend it to our members at 45 um, to have made some money for them, which is nice. But um, the question was, okay, does this business, is it well run? Yes. Is it a business that has a market opportunity that allows it to grow? Yes. Is there enough time and space and runway for that to happen? Yes. So you you know, you know, buy the shares. I think one of the things that, that I don't want to bucket any group of investors, so I won't, but some people try and be right all the time with every single stock they buy. And of course you should be right as, as often as you can. But the people who bought Facebook also probably bought, you know, a, a, the venture capitalist investors who, who invested really early, probably also invested in MySpace and, a, and half a dozen other ones that went completely nowhere. And so they know, they've known for years, for decades, trying to be right every time is not the right strategy. You don't want to make stupid mistakes. You don't want to make unforced errors. You don't want to um, lose money, torch money for the sake of it. But if you've got an investing style that says, hey, if I can find an Amazon and three or four other duds, then you should do that every single day of the week. If you can come up with a style that says, I'm going to buy Domino's pizza and some others, and it's going to be volatile and it's going to be rough, and sometimes the price is going to fall, and 
You remember that Don May from Domino's in the, the the gossip columns of the the financial press regularly about his margin loans and his personal life and all that kind of stuff. And and you know now two three four years later, um, the share price is much much higher because the business kept doing what it was good at. And so I think for me it's focusing on quality, you know, rather than price. Value is a combination, of course, of, of price and quality or price and, and future prospects. But I've learned over time that if you're a long-term investor and you you can stomach volatility, you can stomach being wrong sometimes, and I've been wrong a lot, uh, then focusing on quality is, is part of the answer. You've talked a fair bit about stocks specifically. I wouldn't mind just coming back to this mm. issue of macro falls in the market. Yeah, nice. you know, when When people see... You know, the ASX fell, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, the big numbers that we were talking <laughs> yeah. about last week, i.e. 2%. Uh, <laughs> 2%. <laughs> Would you cross the road to save $2 mm-hmm. on something that costs right. $100? No. Yep. Uh, but, um, but it's amazing what it does when uh-huh. it shares. Um, one of my one of my favourite things in the world, uh, if anyone's read The Black Swan by Nassim Taleb. That's great. Uh, it's such a great book and everything mm-hmm. that he writes is challenging and interesting. Mm-hmm. Um except on Twitter when he just gets into fights with people a lot from what I could see, uh, which is also admirable in its own way. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's, it's a the, the black swan is, it's shorthand now for stuff you can't mm-hmm. predict mm-hmm. that changes everything. And what I love about that book is he has said, you can't predict this stuff and it's going to yeah. change everything. In that book, he talked about oversized leverage in the US housing market <laughs> and US banking sector, which mm-hmm. wiped everything out in the GFC. And yeah. he also talked about the potential for a pandemic. So he says you can't predict it and then kind of alludes <laughs> to the fact that yeah. these are very significant yeah. risks, right? I yeah, love yeah, that. Yeah. I think you've yeah. done a great job there, guy. Um, <laughs> But the point about both of those as massive systemic risks that he alludes to and Mm. came to pass, Mm. timing is everything, right? So the GFC happened within a year or two of the book being published, so he was bang on with that one. Uh, COVID was well over a decade later Mm. when he was talking about a pandemic. But this issue of black swan events, so I did want to give some context on black swans because everyone mm. talks about it, but a lot of people haven't really read <laughs> it right. in much detail. But you know, right. these these events that come out of nowhere and the market falls off a cliff three, 30% in three weeks, that sort of stuff. Do you think about that when you're planning portfolios and when you're investing? Great question. So I think you're right about timing everything, by the way, and, and part, of my, part of my view is honestly that, a, we couldn't have predicted it. And, and even the fact he mentioned it, it may have gone 50 years without one or two years without a, a pandemic. And it turns out that the market is higher than when you wrote the book. So even if you if you, if you you got out of the market to wait for the pandemic, you would have lost money waiting, right? And that's kind of the, the challenge of prediction is you can try and predict these things, but they are really, really difficult to get right in terms of the event, does it happen? Secondly, how big a deal is it? And again, we saw in the COVID crisis, right? Remember the first three weeks, retail stocks and banks fell through the floor. They got smashed, absolutely slaughtered. And all of a sudden, everyone went, oh, but the banks are going to be okay because they're going to defer some loans. And everyone's shopping online, so retailers are fine. And it came back in an absolute rush. So even if you got the pandemic right, you had about you know two and a half weeks to actually capitalise on that before you then effectively missed out two-thirds of, of the recovery because it happened so incredibly quickly. Um, at, at a macro level, I think, so the first thing is, is being temperamentally prepared. So knowing it's going to happen, knowing not to panic, and history is the best teacher there, right? Look back, Vanguard's got a great 30-year index chart. I mention that all the time. Um, really cool chart. Just Google Vanguard index chart. You'll see it. It's a reminder the markets go up and to the right, even despite some falls, and that's what keeps me on the straight and narrow more, more often than not. 
Um, when it comes to portfolio construction, now this is really important because I would actually say the occasional whole market drops, you can't really diversify for, right? There wasn't much that wasn't smashed by COVID. In fact, the so-called safe stocks, think about Sydney Airport or Transurban, um, that was supposedly almost recession-proof, if not recession-resistant, because, hey, who wouldn't fly and who wouldn't drive down the road? Well, it turns out during a, during a, you know, a 2020 pandemic, none of us flow, flew and many, many few of us drove. And so even those so-called safe stocks, the recession-resistant stocks, weren't safe during a, during a mass dislocation. And again, it was a short-term one. So you fix that with time, I think, and patience. And that's easy to say, harder to do at the time. On a portfolio level, though, if you're thinking about other things, diversification is supposed to be helping you for things like individual risks. Uh, so one of the things I do is I have a decent proportion of my portfolio that's exposed to economies outside Australia. If we have an Australian recession for reasons A, B, or C, um, after World War recession, again, I can't avoid that. And you, you know, short of investing on Mars, you, you can't diversify that away. But I can make sure that some of my portfolio is listed and exposed to the US markets or um, you know, other, other parts of the world. Um, I have a small ETF exposure to Asia, for example, which has got absolutely smashed by the Chinese concerns recently but it's a small proportion and it's diversifying my risk across the rest of the world. Um, industry, same thing. People say to me, I'm, I'm diversified. I own four, all four banks. And I have said, no, no, that's not diversification here. You're trying to avoid sector-specific, company-specific, industry-specific risks. Uh, and that's probably how to think about portfolio construction. So you don't need two of everything. I've said before, you don't need, you're not Noah. You don't need two of everything on the arc, but you do want to have a range of companies in your portfolio so that one type of risk doesn't bring your portfolio undone. And again, remember there's a difference between volatility and risk and the academics disagree and the academics are dead wrong. Um, I don't mind saying that. They, you know, they have up, upside risk and downside risk. Ask anyone on the street whether it'd be a risk if they won hundred bucks and they'd laugh at you. Um, so volatility is just things moving around. Risk is the chance you actually permanently lose money. And those are two very different things, but you can offset the latter to some degree with smart diversification across different industries, sector and risk factors. I love your point about about volatility versus risk. That is uh, as beautifully put as any I've any description I've ever heard. It's um, Thank you. volatility is really tricky because yes. it yeah. gets mentioned so often. And when you say we've got record low volatility, no one has any mm -hmm. idea what you're talking about. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Means nothing. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so you may have already answered this question, talking about the benefits of diversification, but it's worth. Mm asking because you talk about specific stocks and that's why people love hearing from you. You're talking about specific stocks. I was asked in a, a presentation a year ago, let's say, when uh, there were some ETF providers on a panel, uh, would would investors just become ETF investors? Would it really drive all the stock picking out of the market? And I was like, I think you have entirely misread the Australian population. <laughs> <laughs> we love a punt, right? And we, we do, love we to do. believe that we can outperform uh, and, and beat the market with our stock-specific uh, investments. Mm -hmm. When you are looking at your stock-specific investments, do you try to analyse how vulnerable those individual stocks are or broadly when you're investing in you know, an ETF in, in Asia, for example, how vulnerable they are to particular types of market downturn. One example, you know, you talked about banks and retail uh, with COVID. You know, we didn't realise that travel was going mm -hmm. to be so exposed right, to, right. to a risk like this. But, you know, when you're investing in different sectors, there's sector-specific risks and company-specific risks. Do you look at that sort of thing? 
Yes, um, though it's worth pointing out that I'm. it's really important for investors not just to look at the downside. And I don't say that as someone who's trying to just push share prices up or, or recommend that investors be reckless. But if you remember that shares go up more than they go down, they go up more often than they go down, um, the story of the stock market is bottom left to top right. Then you need to be mindful of the risks. And there's no point in taking silly risks or not um, making sure you pr- protect and prepare your portfolio. But it's also worth remembering not to take too few risks. And that, again, sounds really stupid, except that at a, at a fully diversified portfolio level, the ASX goes up 9.7 odd percent a year. I think the number was from Vanguard over 30 years. And so, you know, yes, we need to look at the downside risk, but we also need to look at the upside potential. It's not upside risk, of course, I just said that. It's upside potential. Uh, it's all about, you know, the chance of actually making money and, and the probability, right? I think, again, I can't give guarantees. I wouldn't give guarantees to be irresponsible, but... Uh, the, the story of the stock market is top left to bottom right. And so, I'm sorry, <laughs> bottom left to top right. The um, the story is very much the, a case of companies find new and better ways. I'm getting to your answer, I promise. Uh, new and better ways of designing products and services and convincing us to buy things and employing people. And, you know, Steve Jobs, you know, said don't, don't ask people what they want, invent something great and give it to them. That was the story of the iPhone. And so, we have to remember that that you know capitalism for all its flaws works and has always worked and I think will always work. And so, yes, you've got to look at the downside, but don't lose the upside in that story. So when you say, you know, do I prepare? I think I'm I'm looking for at each company, I'm not just looking for certain risks or to avoid certain risks. I'm I'm looking for businesses where I think the upside potential is meaningfully greater than the downside risk in any individual investment. And I said before, I've, I've got lots of losers, right? I've got a couple of companies, a couple of recommendations I made that are down 80 or 90%. And that sucks, right? Our members hate that and I hate that and I wouldn't choose to do it. But I've got some stocks that are doubled, tripled, uh, one's up 11-fold and it's still an active recommendation. So overall, I'm trying to maximize the return, not minimize the risk. And I need to know that's the game I'm playing. Our members need to know that's the game I'm playing. Your listeners need to know that when I talk, that's the game I'm playing. But I'm trying to, you know, not take silly risks at all. I don't do take silly risks. But I am saying overall, these companies, I think, are businesses with good long-term potential. Some will play out, some won't. If I'm right, the ones that play out, hopefully, will gain more than the losers lose. And if there's, you know, if the winners gain more than the losers lose, and I have more winners than losers, that should tell you that the basic math said that's a good, that's a good way to play the investing game. So yeah, I do look at risks. I look for amount of debt. I look for uh, the cash flows of the business. I look for competition risks. I look for regulatory risks. I'm absolutely weighing all that stuff up, but I'm not counting out a business that has um, a freedom of foods, right? Great example. I lo- We lost 90% on that recommendation for members, and I hate that. It was recapitalized. There was some accounting, I'll call them irregularities to avoid myself and, and you getting in legal trouble. Uh, that's probably going through the courts as we speak. Um, but the data, the information is known. That's nothing that's um, that, that's in front of the courts at the moment. You know, that was down a lot. On the flip side, I've already mentioned corporate travel. That's up 11-fold since we recommended it oh, nine, eight years ago. And so net-net, do I wish I'd missed Freedom Foods? Yep. But am I glad I took the risk on corporate travel? Absolutely. And so you've got to take those as a group. And when you talk about portfolio, we're not just saying diversify the risk. We're saying diversify the upsides as well, right? I, I would love to think both companies did well. But I'll take a 90% loser every now and again if I get a couple of two, three, four, five, 11 baggers on the process. This is a very simple thing to do, but it's worth putting the numbers on the table for somebody. So if you put $100 into 
Freedom Foods and mm-hmm. it's dropped 90%. I'm just uh-huh. just rounding out here, <laughs> right? Thanks, thanks for remembering that. Thank you. You now have $10. Correct. <laughs> but if you also put $100 into corporate travel at the same time yep. and you've got an 11 bag, you have $1,100. So these right. are not, uh, this is not a zero-sum game, right? Correct, correct. I, and I think that's something we forget, right? The mm, downside, mm. it can go to zero, but the upside is significantly greater than 100%. Yeah, and that's super important, Gemma. I, I, look, I'm not a hyper growth investor, right? I'm not a bleeding edge investor at all. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not I'm not here taking taking lotto ticket risks and hoping I finally get the six numbers, right? I, I'm I, I'm looking for growth, but I'm not looking for hyper growth. And plenty of people do and do it really well. By the way, I'm not even saying that's bad. I'm just I, when when your listeners think, oh, okay, well, you know, Scott Scott's taking moonshots here and he's you know rolling the dice and being irresponsible. I'm trying to find great businesses that have good long term potential. Um, preferably with good brands. Normally, they're kind of consumer-facing because I like branded businesses. Um, and, I, and I will say for what it's worth, mate, literally as I as I sit and look at my scorecard now, our average recommendation over almost 10 years is up 80% per recommendation. The benchmark, the ASX or the All Lords, sorry, on each of those days, if we bought the All Lords and said, is up 46%. Now, so that's 80 versus 46. Not every company is corporate travel. Thankfully, not every company is freedom foods. So those are the extreme examples. But as you said, if you... Look at an idea and say, well, the most I can lose is 100%. The most I can make is, in theory, infinite, but of course it's not, although Amazon's getting close. Um, the you know the, the returns, if you find businesses that are growing, that are likely to keep growing, that are priced reasonably, then you can do really, really well. I missed Afterpay cold, right? So that doesn't include even businesses like Afterpay. Um, you know, I, I didn't buy it because I didn't think it, it necessarily had proven itself as a business. And Square disagrees and Square paid a lot of money for it. And I've, I've missed the entire run on that one. Um, but buying other businesses, I think, are, are good, solid, safe businesses with good long-term potential. Sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong. But that asymmetry you mentioned is super, super, super important. You've got to remember that. And by the way, the longer you hold, the better the chance of that sort of thing playing out. So let's come back then to the inevitable downturn because it will <laughs> yes. happen and that's when yeah. everyone looks like yeah. freedom foods and it's depressing um <laughs> maybe not as bad as freedom foods but you know like it is really depressing oh, yeah. and yeah, it yeah, does it hurt and mm-hmm. all of your pride in good choices mm-hmm. goes out the window yep. <laughs> all your stuff that you're really really <laughs> chuffed about having in your portfolio just makes you feel really dumb yep. and you think i should have sat on the sidelines so yep. a few questions about that because mm-hmm. it's inevitable Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, Apparently absolutely. There are some uh not pundits is not the right word, but some market commentators, not in the mainstream, but you're really highly regarded. They don't think the market's going down anytime soon, which I find yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Um yeah, but they're they're quite young. <laughs> That's all I'll say. They're quite young. Exactly. Well, we we have a whole lot of investors who take the opposite view, who yeah. if they've got a lot of cash sitting there yeah. waiting for yeah. a crisis in order yeah. to buy. Probably two questions then. One is mm-hmm. you know, what do you think is the value of having cash on hand? Yep. And then the other is leverage. Now, the market is mm-hmm. not as leveraged at the individual level as it was pre-GFC when it was quite mm-hmm. normal to take out mm-hmm. margin loans. The margin loan uh, industry contracted very dramatically after yes, that yes. and hasn't come back in its entirety. So people are not as leveraged into equities as they used to be, but they're terribly leveraged into property. Mm-hmm. Thoughts on leverage, thoughts on having cash at hand. Cool. Um, so I am reasonably so. I, I take Warren. I like Warren Buffett's line. He says, "I want to be caught with my pants up, rather than caught with my pants down." Right, and that means being fully invested. So I have a little bit of cash at the moment now because I'd sold some shares actually in the Motley Fool, as it turns out, 
Um, but ordinarily, 98% of the time, I'm fully invested. And that is because the market goes up over time. And so mathematically, the longer you hold cash, the light, more likely it is that cash drag is going to hurt your performance rather than help you. Now, if we'd, I would have said that, by the way, in February 2020. And then the next week, someone said, see, Scott, you're an idiot. The market's just fallen 30%. Look at all these bargains I got. And I'd say, yep, you're right. But if you've been holding cash ever since then, if, you, if you'd said on, on March 24, I'm ready for the next crash, then I'll jump in. You've missed a return of must be like 65, 70%, I think, since the bottom. Now, much lower number. So we're only getting back to you know reasonable levels. Because the market fell so hard, that recovery alone has cost you a small fortune if you'd sat on cash waiting for the next one. Or, Jimmy, you'll remember the, the GFC, the double dip recession that was supposed to come. And everyone was waiting for the second dip, and then they were going to pull their money in. And then you know, 15 years later, they're still waiting. Um, it's it's a really difficult thing to do well because the market runs against you. It goes higher over time. It always has anyway. And so the longer you hold cash, frankly, the bigger drop you need. Um, I, I like Steve Keen, the, the, the housing pundit uh, and, and academic. He's a really smart guy, really thoughtful guy, really, really cogent, coherent arguments. I disagree with some of them, but, but he's a smart guy, knows what he's talking about and has a view. Uh, he sold his Surrey Hills apartment, I think, was $400,000 about 15 years ago, waiting for a 40% crash. That was a really, really, really expensive bet. Now, I'm talking oh about housing rights. Right. Sorry, that's like the that, first right? time I've ever heard that. Um, yeah. And I've seen Steve, oh, my God. And look, and the thing is, he could have been right, right? So I'm not even saying, he wasn't, oh, well, he was wrong in hindsight to do it, and, and I would have said at the time to do it, because the risk you're taking of making that bet it simply wasn't necessary, right? Like, And this is the thing about volatility. Let's say he was right, the market fell 40%. And I, I might be wrong about the 400,000, but something like that. Let's go with that number. So the market falls 40%. His, uh, his unit would have gone for 400,240 grand, and it would have been worth a lot more than that by now anyway. So maybe he would have got the timing right, maybe not. And this is the thing with shares is every time you try and time the market, you're betting against the market's own trajectory and trend. And I don't mean trend as in short-term uh, trading. Trend, I mean long, long, long-term trend of Capitalism, creating profitable companies, creating more value, share prices tend to go up over time. The market tends to go up over time. So the longer you're in cash, the the longer the the the, the tougher the bet because the further it gets away from you, the more you've got to make back. The bigger the crash needs to be. And and I've got to say too, Gemma, for those who said pre-COVID crash, I'm waiting for a crash. When we got to March five, ten, fifteen, um, as in fifth, tenth, fifteenth. You reckon people are like, oh, thank God, I'm feeling really great about investing now? Or you reckon they're having the same issue with the rest of us? We're like, oh, this could be terrible. Man, we could be like this for years. The market could go another 30%. I better wait and see. Even Warren Buffett didn't invest during the COVID crash, right? It, it was super fast. It was super steep and it was scary as hell. And in hindsight, we look back and go, oh, of course it was over quickly. That wasn't so bad. But for those of us who were investing at the time, it felt terrible. And so having the for people who believe they can somehow get out at the right time, then get back in when everyone else is panicking, you've got to be really, really, really confident at that point to put in theory five, six figures into the market that wasn't cash at what you think is exactly the right point, hoping the market doesn't fall even further. Um, it's it's tempting to want to intellectualize that and thinking, oh, I'm cleverer than everybody else. But like the 90% of us who think we're better than average drivers, <laughs> it doesn't work out that way. And so, you know, it, it's just, it's it, holding cash seems smart. My strong view is that behaviorally, psychologically, it's unlikely to benefit most people because we're not built to be the robots that we need to be to use that well, even if we can get that forecast right. So bottom line, 
a dollar cost average. <laughs> you know, like, sometimes I feel good about it. Sometimes I feel less good about it. But I know that history says that's a smart approach. Buying the best companies you can find at each time you get paid or whatever time period you want to add some money to the market, adding regularly, it just it just helps you. They, they call it pre-commitment bias, right? It's once you know you're going to do it anyway, you just do it and it becomes a habit. And so you take away a lot of those potential pitfalls of will I, won't I, should I, what should I buy? Maybe not yet. Maybe I'll hold cash. And you, you tie yourself in knots, just doing it and doing it and doing it. If the market keeps going up, it's going to be a really smart decision. Oh, that's so interesting. Uh, I, sh- I shouldn't say this. I actually picked the absolute bottom of the market. Oh, well done. Good luck rather than good management. Hashtag humble brag. Yeah, yeah. No, ab- well, this, <laughs> the next bit, right? So as I said, absolute good luck rather than well good done. management. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just I, um, I had been intending to. Anyway, point being, though, was it all of my money? Definitely not. Was it all of my cash? Definitely right, yeah. not. Yeah, Am yeah, I yeah. super frustrated with myself for not having high <laughs> conviction? So frustrated. And yeah. I, obviously I was invested before the crash as well. So I lost yes. some, yeah. gained some, all right, those sorts right, right. of things. Like you can pick the bottom, but the chances of picking the bottom with all of your money <laughs> at the right time. And the risk of being wrong, mate. I mean, you, yeah. you, you were absolutely right. But for someone who said either I'll wait or who oh, jumped yeah. in, like, I mean, I, I bought Webjet, I want to say it was like, late January, early February, right? And I bought about 10 bucks and went to three or something ridiculous. Now, I thought I was buying at a low price because it had fallen from 15 to 10. I thought, oh, this is this is crazy, you buy life some. And had I had I at that point decided I had I had thought I'd pick the bottom, I'd still be down today. You know, and I still am down today on that. I hadn't put all the cash in. So it just, it, it makes to my mind, little sense to risk a, a large amount of money, either all or a big part of your portfolio, on one single bet at one single time on hopefully more than one stock, but on a, you know, on getting it right. Cause if you're wrong, you just run too much of a risk that it turns out diversification, right? Diversify your, your entry points, diversify your purchase prices and your purchase times because the, the cost of the, the gain of getting it right is astronomical, right? It's like winning a lotto. Yeah. I got, I picked the right numbers. I'm a genius. Spend your whole life playing lotto and never getting the jackpot and you're wasting tens of thousands of dollars. And it's just one of those things where, you know, yes, you can get it right and, and make a fortune and you got it right and well done. Uh, others will think, like, I didn't think I got it right at 10 bucks. Uh, no, I bought some other stocks at other times later than that and did make some good money. But that was the point. I was I was investing regularly. When I say I bought during the GFC, I bought regularly during the GFC with the cash I had available, even though at the time it didn't feel great because I knew that over time it was very probable that these were cheap prices to be buying at rather than the bottom necessarily. It was just, it's a cheap price. And so if I bought then, I was going to do reasonably well and that's how it turned out. Yeah, I'm also one of the people who has had some money in cash for a really long time, by the way. Um, Like, I like, I'm naturally quite conservative on that front, like Mm -hmm. to have some money in cash. But as I said, great to have picked the bottom apart from all the other bits. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so, and the the other thing about cash, by the way, Matt, so here's the other, here's the other answer, right? So mathematically, the answer is be fully invested because you're likely to do well. Behaviorally, psychologically, if you're someone who, likes, but not you personally, but I can't give you personal advice, of course, Gemma. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're someone who wants to hold cash because you just feel better to have cash because it just makes you sleep at night, then that's absolutely the right thing for anyone listening who says, I don't want 100% the market. Either I want the flexibility to buy what I want to buy. If the market falls, I'll feel better about that. Then go for it. Or I want some cash just in case the market falls so my whole portfolio doesn't fall by as much then go for it. Um, so I'm not saying, yeah, there is a there is a rationally correct answer, with math, which mathematically is over, over the last 100 plus years, the earlier you invested, the better you did if you, if you hold a very long-term you know, time period. So it's always better to be invested earlier historically. 
but it's not always better for individuals who couldn't bear the volatility or the risk or the concern or wanted to feel more in control and be able to buy during those dips and at the bottom, as you say. Um, so, you know, the, the right answer, the, the logical or the mathematical answer is different to what's actually behaviorally right for the rest of us. I might've said this to you last time we chatted, but I say to the team here all the time, the only good advice is the advice that's taken. I can be a genius and have the most accurate, correct, air quotes, correct answer in the world. And if all of our members go, yeah, nah, but I haven't really helped anybody. And so it's got to be advice that works for the people who are hearing it. Yes, 100%. Although I do agree with you on the cash front and I need to wean myself off that need. <laughs> wean myself off. Let us One, know how you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll be talking about it again in a year's time. <laughs> uh, so one one really important question. So you've talked about the importance of staying invested, mm. trying to strip out the timing aspect yep. because it is so difficult, mm-hmm. you know, we're all terrible at it. And there'll yes. be the odd person who tells you they got it perfectly right. Uh, and yeah. as I said, I got it perfectly right with one thing in yeah. 20 yeah. years uh, and it was the other 20 years that counted, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Try way to put it. So what are some of the risks that investors take that do really worry you? I mean, if mm. if the goal is to be fully invested mm. and investing regularly yep. in quality, what mm-hmm. is the stuff that makes you nervous? You mentioned margin before I didn't answer that question. Margin makes me super nervous. Um, the, the chance of a margin call or the chance of, a, of a, a personal margin call, which is, oh, my God, I can't believe I lost this money. I'm getting out now. This was a terrible idea. What the hell was I doing at exactly the wrong time? So there are those who had margin on the 18th of February who by March 23 either had all their equity wiped out or most of it wiped out or just went, I'm selling anyway, and then missed the entire recovery. Um, margin is just super, super, super dangerous. And a bit like, again, I use the, I normally use the car driving analogy in relation to margin. There are people listening now who are like, yeah, 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 you're right. Normal people shouldn't do that, but I'm okay. I'll be the one who'll, who'll use it well. And maybe you are, but if you, if you think that's you, uh, Google the phrase long-term capital management. They were a spectacularly, uh, popular hedge fund, uh, back pre GFC, I think it was, they had 12 Nobel laureates on staff. These guys were brainiacs and the hedge fund lost the lot, literally the lot. So unless you've got 12 Nobel Prizes to your name or you know 11 other friends and, and you have one and, and, you know, the 12 you want to get together, maybe in 13, so you're better than those guys were, um, margin can wipe you out. And so that makes me super nervous and and particularly for those people who've only ever made money since since April, March last year, that you know they think this investing thing is easy and, wow, if I just juice it up with some margin, I'll do really, really well. That worries me. Um, people trying to time the market worry me generally because um, anything times zero is zero, right? So um, Michael Burry, who famously picked the housing crisis, has been negative on water rights and water trading for the last five, six, seven years. And that's why it hasn't – now, maybe he eventually comes good, maybe eventually works, but being right once gives you a whole lot of confidence that may or may not be deserved, and you won't know that till after the fact. So that, that, makes, me, that makes me nervous. Um, I think – Lack of uh, lack of portfolio diversification, just in terms of position sizing. Um, if you have one company that's 20, 30, 40, 50% of your portfolio, even if it's because it's done well, plenty of afterpay shareholders are having this problem right now, which is a first-class problem. And maybe they're okay because Square will buy them out. Maybe it's okay and, and that's fine. But over time, um, letting your portfolio get too overweight in one position and just jeopardizes your overall performance is, is, is something that I think really worries me in terms of what investors like to do. The last one is probably the economic cycle 
And you said the COVID recession wasn't really a recession that we used to. It was a kind of government-mandated recession and a government-mandated recovery. Um, and maybe that's what the future looks like in terms of recessions, I doubt it, but maybe it is. But it, it just, just thinking about the companies you own, why you own them and, and why you've done well, um, that false confidence or that sense that uh, I know I know all there is to know now, um, history will tell us and your own experience over the next 5, 10, 15 years will tell you how little you did actually know in 2021. That's true for all of us, by the way, um, because that's the other thing. You know, generals fight the last war. Um, the, the next crisis is not going to be the last one. Back to your point about Black Swan and Taleb. It was a credit crisis in 08, 09. It was a pandemic in 2020. The next one will be different. And we don't know what it is. If we knew what it was, we'd be prepared for it. So by definition, it's the thing we're not expecting that actually is the problem because we're, we're ready for the things we expect. Um, and that's why the Black Swan idea is so incredibly powerful and, and why you can't know, right? Because if, if you know what the next Black Swan is, it's not a Black Swan anymore. And that's what makes it so dangerous. And so just being, being humble, being prepared, emotionally, psychologically, financially, um, for what comes, I think, is the best antidote to, to some of that lack of just, and again, what's that like an experience? I don't mean to talk down to people at all. You just can't have that experience by definition. I, you know, I, I invested through the through the dot-com crash and found out a lot of things I didn't know about myself and about the markets and about debt and about business models. And, and you have to learn. Investing is great in the sense, the longer you do it, the smarter and better you get, but there's no substitute for that experience, unfortunately. Oh, that leads so well into my next question. It's my last question also. But you know this, we have a lot of new investors mm. in NAB trade these days, but also mm. right across the market. A lot of people have started investing for the first mm. time mm. in the last 18 months. It's fantastic, right? It's brilliant. That's awesome. So many Unreal. people investing yep. and many have done incredibly well. Mm -hmm. But we're starting, and you may be getting this too, a real increase in people who are going, now what do I do? Yeah, <laughs> I've done so well. Point. What do I do now? Yeah, yeah. What's your advice for that group? Oh man, um, that's a really great question. So continue. Um, which so here's the thing, right? A lot of my advice is like it's like yeah, I'll, I'll do. We know that. Except not a lot of people do it, and they try and make it way too complex, right? So keep it simple. Um, you don't get points for degree of difficulty in investing. You, you the dollar is a dollar is a dollar. If you make a buck, it doesn't matter how you make it. Um, so keep it simple, keep doing it. So keep adding to your portfolio, keep buying companies, just repeat the process, right? Get yourself, I've talked about habits before and about the, the pre-commitment bias. Just get yourself into the pre-commitment device, I should say. Get yourself into those kind of good habits. Um, you've done well, fantastic. You've got a nice base to start from. Uh, then diversify. So when you think about what you're buying next, generally speaking, the right stock to buy next is your favorite stock or the one you think is the best investment you can find. But if you've already got enough of that stock, go something else. Try and get to the academics say about 25 stocks as quickly as you can. Um, I don't know that's necessarily the, I mean, that's kind of chosen at random on it with a dartboard and stuff, and we don't all do that. So I don't even know how applicable it is, but try and get to 15 or 20 stocks as quickly as you reasonably can, because the one you love, my, I own shares in Kogan, right? And thus far, it's gone from $28 to 10 over the last 12 months. Now that's, you know, if that was my favorite stock and 50% of my portfolio and all that kind of stuff, I've lost the best part of two thirds of my, my, my portfolio right now. And the last thing I want people to do is then go, I thought I was great at this. Now I suck at this. I'm going to sell everything. That was a stupid idea. Um, I'll go and blow it on the pokies or, you know, <laughs> whatever I'm going to do with the money. Um, so, you know, I really don't want people to turn that confidence and good fortune into despondency and giving up because things turn out to not go as well as they had hoped they might. So I, I think just think about the way you, build a portfolio from here. You've had a great start and congratulations. You've done really, really well. A little bit of luck, but you've done really, really well. T 
take this opportunity now to set yourself up for the rest of your life. Make this the, the basis on which you compound your future wealth and do that by buying regularly, diversifying your portfolio, spreading your risk, and just doing doing the sensible things that, that make good portfolio construction worthwhile. Also, by the way, get ready for um, lower growth, less impressive results. Uh, a 10% return in a year is actually a really great return, by the way. So you, you're used to you know, 30, 40, 50, 60% returns and you get a five or a 10 or a 15 and think, oh, that's a bit sucky. I'll go and take some more risk. So the other thing is probably recalibrate your expectations, right? You will have tough years, years when you go literally backwards. Years when your portfolio at the end of the year is less than it was at the beginning of the year. And that's going to suck. Um, but that's that's investing, right? It's about one year out of three, you have a negative year historically. So get ready for that. But remember that over the long term, patience pays, adding regularly pays, buying quality pays and diversification pays. Oh, it's such good advice. So hard to stick to, but it's great advice. <laughs> Scott, you guys at The Motley Fool produce a lot of great content and awesome clickbait headlines like The Crash is Coming <laughs> that make everyone want to read it. If people want to see more of what you do, where should they go? Hopefully for a good cause, yeah. Our website is fool.com.au. That's just F-O-O-L, fool.com.au. You can hit us up on all socials too. So The Motley Fool AU on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I'm at TMF Scott P on Insta and, and on Twitter. Um, on Facebook, I'm at Scott Phillips Money is my work page and you can get us at The Motley Fool Australia. Um, we're on YouTube. We've got podcasts. Just, you know, wherever your favourite social platform is, look for The Motley Fool or look for Scott Phillips and you'll find us. Um, we're just kind of, you know, trying to help, you know, we're a business, right? We're trying to make some money. Um, but we also have a, a very strong desire to help educate and inform people and help them become better investors themselves. So if you want to join one of our services, you can absolutely do that. And if you send us, give us your email address, we'll send you plenty of marketing emails, trust me. Um, but if you don't, you just want to find out some more stuff from us, all those resources are dead free. I will say also, I do read your emails because they're excellent. They're very, you, very articulate. And much of what you've been saying today, very balanced, well-informed ideas in there. It's quite fabulous. So even though they're very clickbaity, it's good. It makes you read them. <laughs> You're very kind. Thank you. Well, that's the idea, right? It's it's hard to compete for attention these days. So as long as, oh, it's easy for me to say, but I, I figure as long as the content is worth the, the click, then I, I've justified the headline, but uh, that's for someone else to decide. Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool, thank you so much for joining us today. That's been my pleasure. Thanks, Gemma. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We've received some fantastic feedback and we love getting suggestions for future topics and more. Please just email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.